Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we reveal the embedded codes and challenge the operating systems driving our society. A celebration of the weird, quirky, and liminal space between you, me, us, and them. We're not the only species here, but we're worth keeping around too. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, scientist, environmentalist, and futurist James Lovelock. I think that we are a godsend to the planet because without us, I don't think there's any chance because there's nothing else alive on the Earth that would offset the warming up of the sun. The 100-year-old proposer of the Gaia hypothesis will share what happens when humanity moves from the Anthropocene era into what he calls the Novocene. It's time to intervene on behalf of people, I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I found out the other day that one of the NPR stations was looking for a new kind of radical, political, cultural, social podcast to feature on their air. And uh, a friend of mine who runs a, a large nonprofit organization, he was asked, well, What's out there? And he suggested Team Human. And they said, uh, yeah, we were thinking about that, but that show, and he's just kind of too dangerous. It really got me thinking. On the one hand, I, I mean, it's cool, but am I? Are we? Are we too dangerous? Have we gotten too off the rails, just too bizarre? I mean, it's easy to blame NPR. You know, we could say that they've changed. They've become more conservative and they're all neoliberal. But what if it's we who have changed? You know, what if we are really the radicals? And I don't just mean that in the good way. I mean, like the bad way. Are we the weird kind of beret wearing radicals doing some form of 
overeducated performance art here. You know, radicals, when you think back historically, radicals are almost always wrong, right? They're the weird students in cafes and it's nice and all, but it's not the real world. What if they're right? What if what we're talking about here is really just too out there for the kinds of organizations that we once respected? What does that mean? I mean, who moved? Did they move? Did we move? Did we all move? They agree with us to a point, but there's this place where they think we just go off the rails, that we're too Bernie or too AOC or not Clinton enough and Biden enough. Is it that we're too willing to consider the emotional logic fueling Trumpism or to deconstruct and criticize the way, say, the current philanthropy system supports capitalism? Or are they right? And maybe they think about us the same way we might think about, say, some of the dark web guys that have themselves gone off the rails, right? They're smart, they're educated, they mean well, but they're really just working out some childhood issues, right? Although the childhood issues may themselves have some validity. I mean, we think it's a little too weird. They're kind of, well, interesting, but not for us. Would I have taken an offer to do this show through an NPR station? I I think I would have, but I'm really fine and happy doing it for you, as well as the stations that don't think we're too dangerous, like uh, X-Ray in Portland, Oregon, KXRC in Durango, Colorado, KSPC in Claremont, California. And if you want us on your station and you have any influence on their programming decisions or the email of their program director, please let us know at team at teamhuman.fm, and we will see if we are not yet too dangerous for them. And as always, you can support this show by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. We're adding new premiums from a digital copy of my first book, Siberia, to the brand new Team Human jerseys. And if you get a Team Human membership card and free access to Team Human live events and all that kind of stuff, it really does help you feel and be a part of this team. And speaking of which, We are doing a Team Human Live in New York City at WNYC's Green Space with Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping on Thursday, March 5th. You can get info at teamhuman.fm. You can join contributors like Jason Hill, Boris Grincott, Kerry Smith, Steve Kale, Soren Lindgren, who make this commercial free and an unencumbered place, and who all get to come to Team Human Live events for free. I'm honored today to bring you a conversation with the great James Lovelock, whose Gaia hypothesis back in 1972 proposed that the Earth is a single organism, a living biosphere that regulates the Earth's atmosphere to sustain life. Well, as we all know, Gaia may be in some trouble, not just humans, but the whole thing. Only, I guess surprisingly to me anyway, Lovelock thinks that thinking machines may provide Gaia a way through. Here's one of the most profound experiences I've had since starting the Team Human show, my conversation with James Lovelock. Well, hi, James Lovelock. It's an honor to meet you. 
I read as many of my generation did. I kept a copy of Gaia Hypothesis in my pocket the way other people kept uh, Herman Hess or <laughs> oh, <laughs> On the Road or other thanks, handbooks. Thank you. That, that's, that's most encouraging to me. I thought it was pretty unpopular in America. It was, well, with the mainstream or even with the scientific community, it yeah, was unpopular. That's, but that's the Gaia Hypothesis spread through the New Age, the psychedelic, the environmental movements first, and then eventually it came through the early somewhat spiritual internet crowd that I was a part of because we saw the internet as the the neural fiber of Gaia, that we were going to connect the brain cells of Gaia together with digital technology. And it, it came through to us at the same time as fractal mathematics, uh, morphogenesis, uh, David Bohm's implicate, explicate That's order. Right. Yes. I'm wondering for you, was the initial inspiration scientific? I mean, what was the moment that the picture came together for you? Oh, strangely, I was one of the first people in this country, Britain, to be asked by NASA to help them with looking for life on Mars and the moon or anywhere else out there. And uh, being a scientist, I had to kind of think, not so much a scientist, more an engineer. And I think what they really wanted of me was not uh, more theoretical stuff, what they wanted was hardware that they could send to Mars. Now, you can't send a laboratory on a, 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 an early rocket like Pioneer. <laughs> it's too big, too heavy, and uses too much fuel. So I had some tiny little gadgets uh, which you could hold in your hand that were exceedingly sensitive and could measure very small quantities of all sorts of things. And it was the ESA that really got them excited because they could easily mount those on a thing like Pioneer or something. And uh, I also had a way of transferring a sample from the Martian surface to these gadgets that was highly effective and also lightweight. So uh, but it was merely, mainly as an engineer that uh, I think... Uh, I got interested in how does the how does the planet work, how does the Earth work, and so on. And then was there a moment that you said to yourself, it's alive? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a very slow process. You could, I mean, the Earth is a pretty complicated thing. Uh, and isn't it, I don't think anybody understands it fully uh, yet. Well, I'm sure they don't. And uh, uh, so... You have to wait quite a while as you build up evidence about um, the transfer of things. How is oxygen kept in the air? How, how, what happens to CO2 and so on? In fact, they're still doing it. So do you see Gaia as the initiator or as the emergent phenomenon? Uh, in other words, what's the formal cause, as Aristotle might put it, of Gaia? Or is Gaia herself the formal cause of nature? I don't know. Um, I, I can only say that because I really don't. Uh, one can make guess. <laughs> one well, can if make... you don't know, we're in trouble. We might. We, it means civilization might end without us knowing. I don't think so. No, because it, it must have started long ago when there was no life form 
but the precursors of bacteria and uh, unicellular things. That's how life started. And uh, they, the, its main objective was to maintain the environment of the planet comfortable for itself. It was selfish. Right, but life started in one little place. I mean, it was probably, it was a small thing. There was the first cell or the first bacterium. And it wasn't thinking, I'm going to maintain thermal homeostasis on the planet. It was just trying to swim around or do what it did. Exactly. Was there at some point that life was complex and interactive enough that it took on this function of maintaining the right temperature? We can only make guesses about this sort of thing. I've made models of how the thing could work, and they're, they're fairly complex. It's full of differential equations and that sort of thing. And uh, they, they work fine. And I think you, you've got to go back further than the Earth itself and things on it, because out there in the gas clouds in the uh, cosmos... There are all, all sorts of the precursors of life, che uh, chemical substances that uh, are, are already formed up as spare parts of living things. This is particularly true of the big gas clouds. Right, so they're functioning not, not like life, but they're self-organized on some level. Yeah, a little bit of it, yes. And so it really the Earth inherited at its birth a, a whole pile of bits and pieces of ideas on how to build chemicals, how to join them to produce effects and whatnot. And somehow, by accident, from that formed the system that I call Gaia. Right. And when you say Gaia, I mean, to us, it conjures a conscious being, you know, an earth mother, godlike soul to nature. I mean, for you, is it just a name or does it have some sort of awareness? Um, I don't really know. Uh, as I said, I'm an engineer, not a scientist, <laughs> primarily. And engineers don't bother too much about, I mean, if they, they build a car, they, don't, they think it's a bit weird and queer to give it a life form, say, this is my, my so-and-so. <laughs> Like, we, we tended to call the car we had Sleepy, and it, that was for other reasons. Well, you may be an engineer, but you're a, a humble engineer. In other words, the engineers that I run into now in Silicon Valley think that they should re-engineer reality itself. You know, they almost consider human beings are a problem that engineering can solve for, which is a, a tricky assumption to have made. It, well, I don't blame them. It, it sort of encourages them, <laughs> makes them feel secure. Um, uh, I don't think like that. I, 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 when I say I'm not a scientist, uh, I was sort of brought up in science. And things like, I think the essence of Gaia is sh the equation that uh, that famous physicist Schrodinger produced, dealing with entropy. Now, engineers are quite happy with entropy. I mean, they, you go right back to that Frenchman, Carnot, who showed how steam engines work, and uh, they, they've clung to, to that sort of way of looking at things. They don't worry too much about divine forces moving it or anything like that. In 
the Novocene as compared with the Gaia hypothesis, it takes us down a potentially, depending on your perspective, a potentially darker road where you begin in some ways by explaining that we're very likely alone in the universe. Yeah. You know, and that you, you said that had the evolution of the solar system taken a billion years longer, there'd be no one alive to talk about it. And that's that's interesting. So how did you come to the conclusion that we are we are probably it, that this only happened once? I, it wasn't mine. Um, I got it from reading a book by a, f- a famous astronomer, Martin Rees, called uh, Our Final Century. And... Uh, that that was what he suggested, and uh, it it moved me considerably because I thought, yes, we haven't really had long enough in the, in our cosmos for life to develop, uh, and it's amazingly lucky that we've got it on our planet just in time. Right, because the sun is increasing its heat. That's right. So that the conditions, the temperature range required for life to begin before it had the ability to maintain temperature on the planet um, exactly. was very short that it now that even now it's too hot for life to start again oh yes i mean if we if we really make a mess of it and uh, global warming takes over it'll never start again it'll just the, the earth will be like venus hot and lifeless so in some ways, the miracle, the, the more amazing thing is not that human beings are capable of increasing the climate on the planet one or two degrees centigrade. It's that life was able to keep it down where it is for all this time. Exactly. Well, in the early days, keep it warm enough too. Don't forget, the, if you go back a couple of billion years or so, the sun was a good bit less hot than it is now. And the problem was much more uh, a snowball earth that they talked about. Right. Life that it got too cold, that things would just That's freeze. Right. Yes. So it was warm enough for life uh, in those times, and it's cool enough for life now. But it's having a struggle keeping it there. Right. And for people who haven't looked at it, I mean, Gaia Hypothesis, the book, goes into hypothesizing about many of the different ways that the planet can almost can sweat and respirate and use levels of saline and evaporation and volcanic ash and whatever to keep things within the range. It's a a cooling and heating system for the whole planet. Yeah, well, if it weren't for life, the place would be full of carbon dioxide. It does a marvellous job of keeping the amount of carbon dioxide in the air down to almost a trace level. You see, you you express it in parts per million. I mean, it really is, it's about 400 now parts per million. That's that's a very little. You would think it... Pretty rotten if your beer was only four parts per million of alcohol. <laughs> but then it really raises the stakes for us and what we do now as environmentalists. You know, it's not just the human species that's depending on Greta Thunberg and her friends to avert climate change. It could be life itself in the universe is at stake. Exactly. Yeah, we are the sole representative, perhaps, and uh, it, it's a, it most important to us uh, to keep the Earth going as a living system. So, yes, 
And it's not very difficult. All you have to do is to stop burning carbon. And I mean, a lot of my friends say, well, the earth will be fine. It's just the humans that'll get wiped out. But that's, um, uh, no. you would take a more severe view. Oh, yes. No, because it won't only be us. It'll be everything else alive. Because we're all very similar. Our temperature requirements are the ones that have made Gaia and uh, uh, keep it that way. When I make that argument, people will tell me, oh, but there's some super strong bacteria that could live in a super hot world or that could weigh down at the bottom of the sea that, that would, would survive whatever we do. No, it might for a little while, but it couldn't keep the whole planet suitable for it and its friends. Right, that you need all those planktons and green things and... Mm -hmm. You need the lot, and they've evolved. <laughs> you, they've evolved. Gaia is right. an evolutionary system. It, it didn't happen by accident. And at the same time, I mean, and you relate to it well as a, a, someone who's lived a whole century now. You say that Earth is old. Gaia is old also. And as we become, I know it at, at 58 now, uh, as we age, we become more fragile. Yeah. And you think that the, the Earth herself is more fragile because of her age. She, she doesn't sustain the shocks as easily. Well, something that's lived over two billion years is well used to the process of aging. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to live two billion years, but it is, it's almost ridiculous even to think of it. You can't really say Gaia's old because we don't know what the limit is. Right. But where a, uh, an asteroid strike or a, a nuclear accident, where Earth may have been able to shrug it off a few million years ago, you think it would be more difficult to absorb these sorts of shocks today? I yes, an asteroid strike could kill off life on the Earth. Yes, no, uh, because we're a good bit warmer since the last one, 65 million years ago. But... I don't think nuclear matters a damn. There were natural nuclear reactors in Africa about, uh, I think, I've forgotten how long ago. Uh, you can look it up in a geology book. Um, but there were, uh, and they ran for millions of years. Um, I suppose they might have also been responsible for uh, some of the rapid periods of mutation. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the fear of nuclear has been badly overdone, and I strongly suspect that it's maintained by propaganda from the coal and oil industries uh, because they, their business, business depends on making nuclear unpopular. Right, because nuclear, especially new nuclear, is, is well, it's not renewable, but it's certainly a lot closer to <laughs> renewable than finding dead dinosaurs. That's right, and we, it would keep us going for quite a long time, a time to discover what we really should be doing. But not only nuclear, but uh, some forms of renewable energy may, may also be uh, usable and do the job. But uh, that's really only us behaving like Guy and things. Right. When, when we do, I think we're happier and stand a better chance. I mean, an almost non-Gaian, well, they would look at it as Gaian. Folks like Jeff Bezos and uh, uh, Elon Musk think that the uh, priority is to get us off the planet. 
know that oh, that's, that's cra- utterly and that they crazy. See that Utterly crazy. <laughs> oh, for, <laughs> why is it? Why is it crazy? Especially compared to you know space research compared to Earth research. Oh no, I'm all in favour of space research. Sending small automated vehicles to other planets, if we, uh, that's as far as we can get, and finding out about them. I'm all for that, as long as you don't don't let it take over everything you're doing and take over all, all of the funds available for scientific investigation. Uh, no, I think I'm in favour of it. Uh, but Jeff Bezos' idea of carting us as people out there to Mars is just crazy. Well, they try to... They use the Earth example of, of bees send out scouts to find places for other hives. And if humans don't learn to do the same thing, some sort of space migration, then we'll never get our second hive. The bees fly through the air that Gaia has put there for them, and it suits them. <laughs> <laughs> space is just something. We don't know who made space, but it certainly wasn't in our favor. You try breathing it. <laughs> Right, so you think that space might be uh, somehow sterilizing. It's outside the living part of the universe. Yes, and that's pretty small. So you think the way, the, the real key to human sustainability, other than just stopping carbon, would be really learning about heat. Because we could become conscious enactors of Gaia rather than just unconsciously depending on her to maintain a proper uh, degree range. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I think you're right. Beyond your work and a few others, we haven't done that much work into looking at how does the Earth maintain this system, this this temperature range. I mean, I'm only 100 now. Nobody's been doing it for long. <laughs> I think this is it. Science and knowledge about the Earth moves fairly slowly in human uh, terms. And... Uh, I, th- I can foresee in the next oh, 20 or 30 years, as climate science becomes more and more important and, and occupies our attention more, uh, we'll probably solve many of those problems of how it works. Well, a lot of that, I mean, and you talk about it in, in the Novocene, is people have to learn to think like Gaia, that yep. that we, we have to sort of move beyond. I mean, and we should have since uh, Norbert Wiener and Gregory Bateson, we, we've understood systems theory, but yes. the, the, we don't seem to respect Gaia as a dynamic system. We're still using cause and effect knowledge to understand her workings. Yes. Well, I don't know why they don't. I think um, the, I think the problem is a lot of typical human prejudice. If it wasn't uh, our idea or our nation's idea, it can't be any good. It's that sort of thing. We're, I mean, we're humans with, our, with a lot of fallibility to us. And I don't know if I'm right. I hope I am. But... Um, it is just, as I say, an engineer's way of looking at the planet. Well, it's not just an engineer's way, though. It feels like to get a sort of a Gaia consciousness, you need to employ, although maybe engineers would say they do, but you need to employ a much more archetypally female, intuitive, unconscious, soft focus, holistic perspective, a, a way of seeing, don't you? Well, engineers are intuitive. 
I mean, most of the things they invent and discover, they discover because somebody in the room or just outside said, I wish somebody would invent a thing that would do this or that. And then the idea floods into their mind. <laughs> they don't get it as a dream sleeping or just an inspiration. It's usually an answer to a question. I mean, it feels like this sort of science, if I could be so bold as to call it a kind, a type of science. But the character of the science is not like Francis Bacon taking nature by the forelock and subduing her to our will. You know, the father of empirical thought, the way he described science was, was to be able to dominate nature, that these sorts of insights don't come from that. It comes from a different place. Well, I think a better for sort of character than Bacon was Faraday. Remember, he had almost no schooling. He was almost illiterate uh, when he started and certainly couldn't do mathematics. But uh, almost everything electrical that we use, you can trace back to Faraday. Uh, it, it was inspiration, that sort of thing, that led, led him on. It's interesting. The part of this book that then disturbed me was when you pivoted from what life can do and what humans have done and how humans have been the only thinking conscious beings around to the idea that we're about to be joined by cyborgs and move into the Novocene. And yeah. uh, human beings, I'm certainly not used to other things being able to think uh, the, way, the way we do. But you, you believe that, that's, that that is going to come. Well, I like to think of the Earth as... The, the famous biologist, Lynn Margulis, with whom I used to work, she had an, well, it, I don't know that it was hers, but it was, she certainly was much moved by an image of life on Earth as made up of five kingdoms, the animals, the plants, the, uh, the bacteria and the fungi and one other, the proctocysts, and uh, the Cyborgs really, to me, represent another kingdom which uh, has evolved from us. And uh, I don't know what its form was. I mean, no know damn all about it. What started me with an overseen was I got more and more fed up with the failure to really move ahead from Carol Chepek's book, uh, Rossum's Universal Robots, which was written in 1920s. And we still talk about robots. We seem to think of uh, a highly intelligent automated vacuum cleaner as running the planet. Well, I mean, it just, it just not on. I, I, I wanted something a bit more mysterious than that. And hence the cyborgs and the scene. <laughs> Right, it wouldn't be a, a Roomba uh, or whatever they're called running the world. And when you when you talk about the cyborgs or or uh, you know digital uh, digital life, you you describe it as now that solar energy can be transformed directly into information in ways that it really couldn't before. Well, that's our job, and we're doing it. And there's lots of side aspects to that. I mean, one way most people wouldn't think it uh, feasible, but it would be in a minor way to cool the planet, to offset global warming by broadcasting from enormous radio transmitters all the junk television there is. 
you know, the, 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 the programs that are just not worth a damn because that would be throwing entropy out into space, getting rid of it. That's what Venus does. It, most people don't know that the Earth, if you look at it from far out in space, a long way away from the sun, it looks warmer than Venus does. It's radiating more heat. And uh, the reason for that is, of course, Gaia at work, throwing the heat out into space to keep us cool. And Venus can't do that. And if we were somehow, if we were throwing out old episodes of I Love Lucy into space, well, it would you cool got your planet? favorite hate program. Yes, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, good television would do it as easily as bad. In terms oh, of the energy. In terms of entropy loss, yes, it would. But it, why waste <laughs> good television doing that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, my gosh. So you, you say in the book that, you know, 47 degrees Celsius, that it sets the limit for any kind of life yes. on an ocean planet, even even for silicon-based intelligence, that it wouldn't be able anything, to tolerate anything it anymore. would be knocked off because we would rapidly, as a planet, change to a state like Venus. The temperature would be about two, 250 Celsius. That's the kind of temperature it would go up to. Well, you can't live at that. I mean, that's a hot oven. So you think then that even if the singularity came and computers or cyborgs were, you know, smarter and better equipped than us, that they're still going to want us around because we'll be able to help them keep the planet cool? I think so. But I don't know how, of course. And uh, that's, that's for the next book, <laughs> if I survive that long. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the things that we humans try to do to fix the problem aren't actually if we looked at them systemically, they're not so great. Like um, plastic recycling. You know, we all in America, I'm sure they do there. We stick our plastic in these bins and they take them off and then they melt them down into new plastic. You think if you look at all of the inputs and outputs, you think that that's a fool's errand, right? I think so. Well, yes, I would agree up to a point. Although we don't have much alternative. You can't let them pile up into the in the environment as a great big mess. You've got to collect them and uh, dispose of them in the best way you can think of. But do you think it uses more heat to melt them down into something else and reprocess them than it would just to bury them somewhere? If you really think you want to do something about global warming, the thing is you just stop digging for coal and pumping up oil. Just stop it altogether. It's a bad thing to do and it's It'll kill us all if we can't go on doing it. And it's a bad thing. It's not technologically required, even at this stage of our, our engineering capability. It's not technologically required. It's just economically required because we have a growth-based, corporate-driven economic operating system. And not only that, but people are selfish naturally, and they think in terms of their own pensions and funds and stuff that's coming from the investments in coal and oil and so on, and that they can't bear the thought of not having it. Right. And that's an argument that's been made against me. I mean, I, when, I, when I've gone to uh, conferences and talked about, you know, transitioning away from coal and the growth-based economy, and they'll say, well, yes, but if you replace Exxon and Sunoco with a nuclear power plant, what happens to the old lady who's depending on her dividends 
from Exxon exactly. stock. Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're so right to say nothing of the various guys that have put their money in it. Right. Well, they, they only want to talk to you because you want to think about the poor old lady in her apartment who can't feed her cat if she doesn't have her coupons clipping. And as if there's no other way to get her the money she needs, once we're using more renewable uh renewable energy as if the money just goes away (laughs) it doesn't it finds it's i don't know how i'm not an economist i don't know how it works it's all mystery to me but uh, it it always seems to work we've been through some pretty rough periods in the on these islands of during world war ii for example during the Suez crisis and it's amazing how quickly you get by when there's a shortage of something in fact, people were healthier during World War II than they were in peacetime. And they were, they were moving their bodies a bunch. I mean, everyone was healthier except the people on the, uh, you know, yes. on the battlefield and in the concentration camps. I'm sorry, I was being selfish. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of us here rather than... Uh, right. It's, it's true. The people, people at home were doing better. Yeah. So you talk about, as we shift from the Anthropocene or whatever we're in, that we're in to the Novocene, that natural selection that's driven evolution up till now, it's going to actually move into something more like a purposeful selection. Well, evolution is absolutely solid. There are those that don't believe in it, but I, I don't think their case is very strong. It happens. So why would doesn't why not have it? It happened to us. There'll be from us will evolve cyborgs or whatever, uh, just in the same way as from fusion of individual small cells in the oceans long ago. There came plants and animals. But it's a bigger transition, though, because it's not just you know water to to land or to air, but from genes to code. You know, we're talking going from DNA to COBOL or... No, 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 <laughs> or, we're not. Uh, well, uh, no, no. Uh, the, uh, the only problem with DNA and those things is they're too damn slow. If you send a signal along a nerve, it travels at a million times slower than sending a signal along a copper wire. It's almost exactly a million, and uh, that we've that has got. If we're going to have cyborgs evolve from us, we have to have a different nervous conduction system. I don't know how. Don't ask me. It's not my job. Um, <laughs> but we have to. You suggest, or you state directly. You say, you know, the bit is the fundamental particle from which the universe is formed. Oh, that's the. Sp- Sorry, uh, that I have said that, but it's a speculation. It's gotten no, I've no proof of it. On the one hand, it's inspiring. On the other hand, that's a scary thought. It kind of goes against what feels like a a, a more spiritual sensibility about the world. It it moves into that sort of Ray Kurzweil area that evolution is the process of information looking for more and more complex hosts. And as computers can handle complexity better than humans, that information will move from us to them and we should pass the torch and gracefully accept our own obsolescence. 
And that was part of what led me to want to do Team Human. I don't like the idea of being obsolete. I feel like human beings can do things that computers can't. We can embrace paradox. We can uh, uh, experience awe. We, we don't have to resolve things to ones and zeros. We can stay in that liminal space between things. And I'm concerned if we just decide, well, computers are our successors and we'll pass the torch and fade into the background that Gaia dies, that it, computers cannot shepherd this thing. Well, I, th- I think you're, you're pushing it, the, the notion of the ability of computers far too far. When we appeared on the planet, animals appeared on the planet, the plants didn't die off. They formed a relationship with the animals. The animals, like us, actually plant the plants uh, and use them for cycle them for food, and we supply the carbon dioxide back so that they can grow in the sunlight. It's a mutual process, and evolution always considers that the appearance of of humans on the planet does not necessarily mean the loss of la- of plants. Right, it may, but <laughs> but well, it doesn't, it may, it doesn't have idiot, to. If we're idiots, we need all all five kingdoms to keep things going. I mean, the fungi are needed to transfer the rare elements from the rocks to the plants, that the, and the, then then from the plants to us. You wouldn't have cobalt iodine right. if it weren't for the plants. Right. And likely, if a new form of life emerges, if we want to call a digital, a digital life or a novocene native life form, that we would be mutually interdependent. Yeah, indeed we would. Although just how is very hard. I mean, don't think anybody has a guess. Because right, I always look at examples like cancer and, you know, environmentalists will tell me, oh, well, human beings, we are the cancer destroying the planet. You know, we're killing our host. And folks maybe more like me would say, oh, but, you know, maybe digital life is the cancer that's going to grow exponentially when nothing in nature can really grow exponentially other than markets, which destroy humans. I just find that many of the enthusiasts for digital life are kind of libertarians who see in digital, the ability to do the exponential growth that real society has been unable to to provide the markets. Uh, you shouldn't be too hard on cancer. Look at it as a form of waste disposal uh, for animals and plants. What use would it be for me to live twice as long as I've lived? I mean, I'd be really worn out. I'm, uh, I've don't have anything like the strengths or intelligence I had maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, uh, if I go on another 30 years, I'll be just a doddering old idiot. Well, on a personal level, though, do you think that if you were to die, which you probably think is going to happen at some point, um, but I'm going to still I'm going to still make it an if because we don't know. We don't know. Um, we don't know for sure. Um, I'm pretty but if sure. You were, if you were, t- <laughs> if you were, have you contemplated what happens then? Do you think it just stops, or do you think some form of of energy awareness uh, moves on after that? Oh no, there's a lot of bacteria and other things will be eating up the debris that I leave behind. <laughs> and that's about it. So you think when yes, when yeah. when the brain shuts down, you're not going to go to some dreamy space with other no. people who've passed. 
Well, I may be wrong, but I just don't see it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not unhappy as a result. Well, I don't worry. I'm not so unhappy about me dying as an individual, but I do get concerned then if the planet dies, if Gaia dies, where does it go? That would be absolutely disastrous. But think back to... I forgot who it was. Maybe it was Isaac Asimov. Who was it suggested the whole damn show is just one big game and it would just be a case of whoever's playing Gaia loses. And they wrap up the bits and pieces and start all over again. We don't know Which wouldn't be so terrible. No. A lot of of my peers think that we're living in a simulation now, that this isn't even... Uh, I guess this that, isn't even well, real. There you go. I mean, we just don't know. Yeah, I. I it seems pretty. I'm. I've. I decided that even if it is, they've done such a good job. I'm not. <laughs> I'm. I'm going to accept it as if it were real. Well, Gaia's done a good job. I mean, two billion years. It's pretty good going. Yeah. No, she's done well. She's done. She's done a good job. And even if she does, you know, conk out now, she sure gave it a good, a good fighting try. My gosh. Absolutely. Yes, that's it. But you also suggest, though, that it's possible that once we're going, once we're deep into the Novocene, that machines could potentially build a complex, sustainable planet that maybe even from carbon atoms somehow, if this planet were not going to work anymore, they could go somewhere else or they would go somewhere cooler. So maybe out to Uranus or Neptune or somewhere where, you know, they could build new new robot machines. No, I... I I don't think any of the other chunks of rock circling the sun are any use whatever as homes for life apart from the Earth. And the the Earth is suitable because Gaia's mate kept it that way. It happened to pass through a phase two billion or more years ago when life formed and started going. And it had the option then, are you going to keep it like this? And the answer was, yes, you have to. And it has. I mean, I think a lot about can Gaia become completely inorganic? It would take, I mean, a long time, obviously. Computers will need us and life to maintain homeostasis. But if they developed machines, solar powered, who knows what, to do similar things to atoms and molecules to maintain somehow a good temperature and they let life, you know, they let life go. Do you think that Gaia can stay alive in digital form? In, you know what I mean? In some sort of more pure informational form? I don't think so for several reasons. One is there isn't time to do the... You see, it's taken two billion years for organic life to develop to our our sort of levels, at least two billion years. We've got almost no time at all left uh, with the sun warming up. I mean, I think Martin Rees's book, Our, Our Final Century, I mean, puts the time scale more in place 
than we realize. Uh, some people have interpreted the new book as if you're on board with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kurzweil and the transhumanists and that, you know, well, computers are coming and digital tech and we should just upload our consciousness and leave carbon-based life forms behind. You're not saying that at all. You're talking about more of a, a maybe a, a symbiosis of sorts with this new kingdom of life that we'll create. Well, they're putting in my mouth all sorts of things I haven't said, I think, in saying that. I just don't know. Uh, all I do know is that evolution happens. It's, it, it's a constant almost of the uh, present system. And uh, it, I think Darwin was right. It's just going on. And uh, But what form it'll take, I mean, it's a bit like asking uh, a crocodile, do, do you suppose that you'll be talking on television in uh, so many years to, to come? He wouldn't know. Maybe we didn't evolve from crocodiles, we evolved from something else. But uh, evolution just goes on. It keeps Things keep changing to suit the changing needs. Right, but do you feel that evolution has intention in other words is it you sort of random mutation or is life groping towards something you a lot of it can be explained by random you can make models uh, mathematical models of systems and they they seem to work all right but i don't know if that is really simulates what what is happening because I remember back, it must have been back in the 50s or 60s, uh, Gregory Bateson gave this famous speech. It was about uh, conscious purpose versus nature. And it was this sort of a, a milestone in what I think was an effort to paint humanity as somehow unnatural and hostile to the rest of creation. You know, and it led, in, in a good way, it led to the environmental movement and the, the Earth Day but I wonder if this is if, if it's being expressed today in this this notion of the Anthropocene, in which humanity has irrevocably altered the natural world at some geological level negatively, and thus humans need to be on one level or other. Human needs humans need to be eliminated. I think I'm wholly wholly against that idea. Absolutely, again, it. I, I, I think that we are a godsend to the planet because without us, I don't think there's any chance uh, because there's nothing else alive on the earth that would offset the warming up of the sun. The sun warms up inevitably, and eventually, it'll, and not so long in the future, it'll reach a state of heat output where no life can survive on the earth. And the, the only thing that can offset that time limit is us or what our descendants. And, uh, but it, we were, even we won't stop it altogether. But do you think the earth needed to evolve conscious, self-conscious beings like us in order to be able to now engineer solutions willfully and consciously that sort of random bacteria couldn't figure out on their own. Exactly. So we're a good thing. Oh, of course we're a good thing. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it otherwise. 
<laughs> so you're on you're on team human then. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, I feel a lot better now. Um, <laughs> this is a fun program, I can see. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's fun talking to you. You know, I, I, I so appreciate you taking your, your day and your, your increasingly limited time um, to, to spend with us and to share this uh, with us. And I am, you know, I am looking forward to the next book that you write. Are you, are you started on a new uh, inquiry now? Are you looking forward to, to another uh Yes, uh, what, are you, th- what are you working on? Oh, yes, on? I'm thinking about it very much. Yes, I, I think the big question I've got facing me is: Well, what form will this new kingdom of life take? I mean, we've got, as I said, we've got animals, plants, fungi, and so on. Well, what's the next? The the Novacenas, What what form are they going to take? What will they be? I don't. I dislike the early idea that they're just mechanical robots because I think this is too human, too primitive uh, and so on. But uh, but what is going to evolve next? And that's an intriguing question to me. And I'll make some guesses about it. I keep thinking back to Cain and Abel, you know, and what, what can human beings actually create? You know, Cain gets punished mainly. They think, oh, he just sacrificed vegetables and God doesn't like plants. No, you know, in Midrash, in Torah study, it's argued that the reason God was mad at Cain was because he sacrificed something that he believed he created. Whereas Abel killed an animal that clearly God created. Cain comes in, here, I made this for you. And God's like, you didn't make that. I made that. You know, you just <laughs> cut it down. You reaped it. There's a lot of good stuff in the Bible. Yeah, but that that digital life, that as long as we think of digital life as something that we alone created, we're not really going to understand it. That once we understand that digital life is us in partnership with nature, nourishing, you know, growing something else, that's when it gets that's when it gets interesting to me. And you're absolutely right. It's the right way to look at it. Oh, well, beautiful. This is a, a life goal of mine since I had my first of the, I mean, they don't even make them anymore. The mass paperback edition of Gaia Hypothesis, you know, just to, to, to live in a world. At where, where I, by the time I was writing, there were no mass paperbacks anymore. But to have had your words mass produced on pulp paper, it could feel cheapening. But to me, it's such, it's so replicative. It's like your words became like pollen and spread in ways that ideas don't seem to spread anymore unless they're on Twitter. Um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to have the time of your body, your whole organism thinking with me is a, a pleasure and, and a deep, deep honor. And thank you the same way. I, I really enjoyed this program. You really have done my spirit good. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was scientist James Lovelock. You can find out more about him and his new book, The Novacene, at jameslovelock.org. You can find out more about Lovelock and all our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a subscriber and contributing supporter of this show. 
Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our editor is Luke Robert Mason. Our producer is Josh Chapdelin. And special thanks to Brian Appleyard, the co-writer of Novacine, who first reached out and then connected us with Lovelock himself. Without you, this would not have happened. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.